Let's go before the Lord, please. Lord, we thank you and praise you. Thank you for gathering us here this evening, Lord. We thank you for this building and these facilities, Lord. And just pray, pray that you would bless the service, Lord. Your word, Lord, that it would be exalted. And the children's classes and everything, Lord. Bless our evening as a church family. And we pray that you would edify us in these things. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so tonight, as we're getting very close to wrapping up the book of Proverbs, tonight is a message, actually, I was really excited to teach. I prepared the message a couple of months ago, and uh, very excited to teach this one. And it's going to be a mixture of Proverbs chapter 30, but there's going to be some apologetics mixed in with this as well. That's our job, you know, when we come up and teach, we want to equip the saints. And so some of the things that have occurred throughout this entire year have kind of kind of led up to this, and so this is a um, kind of a, a mixture of some of those things. We're even going to look at evolution and how to discuss evolution with a non-believer, and, and really how uh, the Lord has just really showed me some clarity here recently on um, and crystallizing my thinking as far as evolution, and something that I've studied for quite a few years now, and really how to discuss it with people, and so... Uh, all of that is kind of combined in this, as you know, with I, I want to try to bring things that you all don't already know, so I hope to make it interesting for you. Uh, some of this is derived from, uh, as many of you have heard me mention, uh, I did a podcast with an atheist way back when earlier in the year, and I've referenced that several times during like some of our men's, men's fellowship and things like that. Uh, a very cordial meeting with him and, and had a neat time, and I hope to get back with, with him before too long and discuss some things. It was, it was very friendly overall, not, not antagonistic at all. So when I refer to that, I definitely don't want to make it sound like I'm out doing podcasts. I've, never, I've only done one. I'm definitely not trying to make it sound like I'm on the circuit doing this. Like I'm not trying to draw attention to myself at all. It was a learning experience for me, and I hope to pass it on to, to all of us just because it, it really kind of helps your, your thinking when you understand how people think. So I hope to bring that in. I've had a number of discussions with atheists over the years simply because my family is atheist, all of them. They're, they're all atheists. So I've had a lot of discussion, and it, it's personal to me for that reason. And I've also read a lot of their material, and there is a lot of pride there too. And, and so it's, it's good to know how to approach discuss, discussing these things and being able to stand for our faith and what we believe and why we believe it. Agur here has a better approach. As you notice, first thing, he humbles himself. He's a relatively unknown teacher, but here he's included in the Bible, having been given the word by the Holy Spirit, and he seems to want to accomplish three things at the very beginning. He seems to abase himself and exalt the Lord at the same time and also exalt God's word. And that, that's just a great posture for us to, to take when when looking at these things, if you're a non-believer, you don't want to come at it with pride, and, and sadly, many of us do. And I know I've had pride in my own life as well. And, and there's pride in the Christian community as well, not just atheists, not, not anyone. We all struggle with that. But here, you know, that's the right approach to really humble ourselves, as Agur does. In, in these verses here, when he starts out, he's living out what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.18 Paul says, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. And that's, that's a good recommendation for us to be humble before the Lord and really try to search these things out like the Bereans. So it's important to have that humility before the Lord. 
This does not mean, however, that we have a blind faith. In fact, we have an evidence-based faith. That's important to remember. The world would accuse us of having a blind faith. And I've been told that my faith is in vain all my life, but that's not the case. And we'll, we'll see that here shortly. We know as Christians, it's a heart issue. So we come to the Lord and we, we know that we don't know everything, except we know every man is a liar and God is true. And we as Christians simply know and acknowledge our, and admit our sin. And we also know the fear of the Lord is, is really the beginning of wisdom. So Agur then looks at creation much like Job does. And he says, who has established all the ends of the earth? And he, it's interesting that he points out the creator and his son, by the way, in verse 4. Very interesting thing to, to say there. So the first, one of the first interesting examples, something that happened at the beginning of the year is I think you'll find very interesting. I've, I've been studying the cell for about three or four years now, really looking at it. And like I said, the Lord has shown with some clarity one major weakness in the evolutionary argument. So a major weakness with evolution and and this example is really going to highlight that. Um, so at the beginning of this year, there was an offer put out by the, the Royal Society of London, which is a secular organization, completely secular. They actually put out a $10 million challenge to any team that can evolve a single cell. That's about 10 times what the Nobel Prize puts out, by the way. So the Royal Society of London put out a challenge, I think it was January, something like that, $10 million to any team that can allow or encourage a cell to evolve itself. So when I saw that, I was very interested in it. It's the kind of thing I'm interested in. And I decided I'm going to put out a $100 million offer that, for anybody that can do that. Do I have $100 million? Not even close. No chance. But do I have to worry about actually paying that? No chance. There's no chance of that. So that's the type of thing I would worry about having to pay someone if I put out a challenge for someone to be able to opt to ride their mountain bike to the moon under their own power, not like in a space capsule, but actually be able to make it to the moon. Because no matter how hard you bike, you're going to be at the same exact starting point as when you started. So it doesn't matter unless you bike to the top of Mount Everest. That gets you 29,000 feet, but you've still got a ways to go. So it's simply not going to happen. They're not going to, nobody's going to be able to win the $10 million. And this is why. This is what the part of the challenge states to arrange for a digital communication system to emerge or self-evolve without explicitly designing the system. In other words, the DNA and the cell, everything has to evolve simultaneously at the same time without anyone helping it along. One of the society's biologists, so he's one of the people putting the challenge out, Dennis Noble, not, not Noble spelled the same way as Nobel Prize, but Dennis Noble stated, I cannot personally see how DNA could have been there at the beginning. After all, it requires the cell to enable it and to reproduce, and it requires the cell also to correct errors in that reproduction and replication process. So that's one of the proponents of evolution saying, I don't think it can be done. So he's putting the challenge out, but he's right, it can't be done. And the problem is you can't have the DNA without first having the cell in which to house it, but likewise the cell can't function with the DNA, and that's just the beginning of the problems. That's just a very nutshell version of that. It's amazing how something like this includes very intelligent scientists, and yet they refuse the word of God and then struggle with things like this. So one of the first points in apologetics, if you can picture yourself speaking with a, a non-believer like, like I've done a number of times, 
of course we have the foundation. We have our word of God, and that can work. You know, like, where do you, you know, should you die tonight, where are you going to end up? And that can work. That's our foundation, speaking the word of God. That's a very good thing to, to start out with. So they know you're a Christian. They know where you stand. And especially if you're new, a new believer, you know, you can tell what the Lord has done for you, and you can tell your testimony. You may not have the answers, but as we progress and as we mature as believers, it's important to study the Word of God and study to have an answer to these things to be able to, to defend your faith. So the trouble is more and more our society has just become a Greek. So you may say, say something like, you know, if you die tonight, are you going to end up in heaven or where would you end up? Are you, you know, your sins, do they convict you? Things like that. And people are going to be like, we evolved. There's no chance of that. There's no God. There's no heaven. There's no hell. When you die, you just go back to the earth and that's that. So, so part of this, the purpose of this is just to encourage you to study and being prepared to, as Jude says, to contend for the faith. Examples could be, you know, if you're speaking with someone and you they say, well, I believe in evolution. You're not just going to say, well, Jesus has a wonderful plan for your life. Or what about slavery in the Bible? Well, God loves you. Or I believe in science. Well, Jesus will change your heart, change your life or touch your heart or whatever. That stuff is for the Hallmark Channel to touch, you know, touch your heart or anything like that. This is talking about actually saving people from judgment, from the recompense that's due their rebellion. So that's what this is about. So it, it's important to have, have an answer for these things. If someone were to ask me, you know, or say, Jesus is going to change your life, I think everybody in this room would be like, I have a great life. I don't want to change it. You know, why would I want to do that? So that's you know, not even on their radar. So it's important to, to approach them and have answers to these things. And it is what happened when I, when I had the debate with the atheist. He said at the end, he said, you actually had answers Whereas a lot of people just sort of, I forget what he said exactly, just sort of muddle through it and they don't have really specific, you know, really specific answers to the questions that he posed. And with the debate, I, I didn't have, I didn't know what the debate was going to be like. I didn't know the format or anything, the challenges or anything. It was just kind of one thing after another. So with evolution, something that has really become very clear is that all evolution, all evidence for evolution is based on some degree of speculation. There's no real, there's no evidence for evolution that doesn't require speculation. The, what I've really come to realize, and, and all of this has kind of come together to, to make it just more clear to me, but all evidence for evolution involves speculation except direct observation as seen in evolving a single cell. So that's, that's really the key thing that you can bring to someone's attention is, you know, for all the, all the supposed evidence, really, that's the one way. That's direct observation, Obser observing a single cell to evolve. That's the only form of evidence that is direct and does not involve spe speculation, is evolving that first or initial cell to evolve and assemble itself. But the point is here that it just can't be done. And you're going to see in, in your, with your own eyes in just a moment here. But you think about the trillions upon trillions of organisms that are alive today. So just trillions upon trillions. There's so many organisms alive today that supposedly came from that first initial cell, and we can't get one single cell to evolve. That's amazing when you think about it, that, that, no, that we just can't even get one to, cell to evolve. It's an absurd problem when you think about it. 
And yet scientists are actually talking about how many other planets are evolving life as well as ours, which that, when I heard that on the radio driving somewhere, that struck me as ridiculous. Like, why would you worry about other planets when you should be able to evolve here on Earth where conditions are obviously ideal for life to evolve if it could evolve, but it can't, so it won't. There's no way that that's going to happen. So why worry about other planets? You know, you try to evolve it here on Earth where conditions are ideal. There was one other, one other sort of event where that happened that really started to, to um, make this clear in my mind. But as you all know, I love history. I was listening to an audio CD and um, it was about the geological record being discovered and it lined up supposedly perfectly to support Darwin's theory. So the timing of discovering the geological record and all the fossils and everything, the whole fossil layer, how things would line up to support evolution. So throughout the story, I was actually getting excited to hear what he said because he kept building and building as if he was kind of going toward this climax about this about this geological map that would prove or support evolution. And then during the book, it just sort of, then it just sort of flipped where it was like, and now we know all these things are the Cretaceous period, the Jurassic, the blah, 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 all these. And he never brought the concrete, hard evidence that I was looking for. I was actually excited to get something concrete, but that's just what evolution is. It's a shell game. Nobody really knows. Everybody always trusts everybody else as far as this goes. I was looking for actual real hard evidence to sink my teeth into and then to disprove it step by step or point by point, but they w didn't even happen. You know, then it was just kind of like everything was after the fact, like now we know this, this, and this, and evolution is true, so, and that's it. You just are supposed to accept that at face value. So everybody assumes the biologists assume the geologist, geologist knows, the geologist points to the astronomers having the proof, but nobody really has hard evidence. It's a shell game. And so back to the discussion with your atheist friend, I would challenge you to challenge them to give you one hard piece of evolution, like one definite piece. They'll mention the fossil record. That happened during the debate, the fossil record. You know, you'll hear things like that, and no one will ever be able to give you anything really hard as far as that goes. Even at the end of the, dis at the discussion with the atheist, he said, well, even if, you can't dis even if you disprove evolution, you still can't prove God. I was like, maybe. And now I've kind of taken that as a challenge. I'm not so sure about that. I'm, I'm thinking maybe we can. So I, I'm taking that as a personal challenge as well. And one, I like visuals. One way we can do that, do you guys have the chart available? So anybody who's, who doesn't quite believe you yet, this is where, what you can show them as far as the kind of the hard sell as far as that assembling itself, that's just a little glimpse of the cell. That's not even the complete thing. You can get that on Roche. It's Roche Metabolic Pathways. You can go to that. That's just a little fragment of what a cell is required to evolve. But can you guys really picture that assembling itself? That's why the people who are trying to get $10 million, if I thought there was a chance, maybe I would do it until I saw that, because that's just not going to organize itself. So you can go to that website if you have any um, you know, any atheist friends or any people you'd like to discuss these things with, it's a great resource. So if you want the $10 million, you'd better get a good job because you're not going to get it that way. So in the summary of Ager's first few points, he abases himself by asking these rhetorical questions. Moving on through here, verse 5, we know that the word of God is pure and by his promises we know they are secure and we don't want to alter the word of God. 
uh, verses 7 through 9, neither give me poverty nor give me riches. What a blessing. I've, I've often thought this. What a blessing it is to just be a middle-class person and just live an anonymous life. It's, it's so much easier than, than what we think would bring happiness to us. In fact, when I was typing this up a couple of months ago, Jackie had some work done at, at our house, and the workman there, a very nice gentleman, he was, whatever they were discussing, I don't know how this came up, but um, just he used to be a builder, and so he used to work on very, very large houses for like pro prominent people. He worked on one large house for a prominent couple, a very prominent family in Richmond, and he told the story how the husband and wife would come to, build, to the building site to build a house, and they would argue about every, time, every detail about the house, and every time they came, they would argue and then about how they wanted the house built, and then eventually they divorced with the house being only partially complete. So, he was, so the builder was like, well, what do you want me to do with the house? It's only partially done. And so, um, so that's just an example. We think that, that the money would be so great, but like he says here, you know, don't give me, you don't want too much or too, too little. And uh, for those reasons, incidentally, they apparently got very, very expensive Williamsburg brick. I don't know anything about brick, but I guess it's very expensive and some of the best stuff. And then they for a chimney, and then they painted the whole chimney black. So all that, and they didn't even have taste to show off their expensive brick. So in summary, so we don't want extreme poverty or extreme riches. The Bible gives us a very straightforward, just several things to do. Easy to follow biblical example. We're to work with our own hands and mind our, mind our own business. We're to be industrious but not greedy. We're to tithe and remember the poor. And we're to provide for our own families and others and to be mindful of the kingdom of God. So that's overall pretty simple. It's not, not hard to follow those things. and just It's just a matter of keeping our pride in check. Verse 10, so this is one place that we'll dig deeper. Do not malign a servant to his master lest he cursed you and you be found guilty. We'll dig deeper again just to give every man uh, uh, an answer for this. And this, this is something that came up during the podcast as well. So the, how the podcast came about, incidentally, is some of our boys, William here and, and some of the guys from Calvary, were actually at a coffee shop. And a, the gentleman overheard them discussing things with the Bible. And so he said, oh, I'm an atheist. And so like, I'd like to speak to like, one of your pastors or elders or is anybody that, that I can speak to. And Will told him about me, so passed the contact information on, and then eventually we had the, the podcast set up. And again, he was a very pleasant gentleman. We got along very well. <clears throat> and I didn't know what the format would be, so it was just kind of rapid-fire questions. And so at some point during the debate, he said, atheists love Exodus 21. And I was like, wow, okay, good. Well, I don't know what it is off the top of my head, but let's turn there and see. <laughs> So when you think about it, that's an amazing statement. Atheists love Exodus 21. And what that is, that's a chapter regarding slavery, and they love it because they can excuse what they want to excuse, they, they think. And so, so he was talking about slavery and, and all this, and so I was like, well, first of all, slavery was universal at the time. So nations did it to other nations. People did it, did it to Israel. Israel reciprocated at times, but it was very well regulated, as you see here. Secondly, they should be glad that there were any rules at all with slavery, because most nations didn't even have any sort of framework, framework like this. There was social justice built in place right, right here in this chapter. If you even knocked the tooth out of a slave, you had to set them free. So you could not abuse a person. If you even knocked their tooth out, 
and I, I told him told him this, and so, and then secondly, we're all guilty, and in in my opinion, I think we're kind of guilty a little bit as Americans because we all know there's so much material goods coming in from other countries that involve slave labor. I hate to say it, communist countries. I'm sure you all have seen where the buildings have nets, suicide nets, so that their workers, which are considered state, state property, can't jump off and kill themselves. But I still ch buy Chinese-made goods because there's not a whole lot of other opportunity, and we kind of do it. So I don't like to point fingers at anybody because we're, we're doing things that we know could possibly be affecting other people adversely. So, um, so anyway, so that's, um, that's something that I told him as well. Thirdly, you could actually put yourself into slavery. Exodus 22.3 says, speaking that if a, a thief has stolen, but he has nothing of value, and he can't make restitution for what he stole, then he shall be sold for his theft. So in other words, if a thief steals from you, then he's, he's sold himself into slavery. If he can't pay you back like four times or five times, he actually has sold himself into, into servicehood for you. But slaves had to be set free at six, after six years of service. So bearing in mind the historical context with this, the Bible regulates this with kindness. But Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy also outlined principles to ultimately abolish slavery. So that's important, and I didn't say that during the during the debate because I had to go home and research it. But after a little bit of study, Leviticus 25 says, and if one of your brethren who dwells by you becomes poor and sells himself to you, you shall not compel him to serve as a slave. As a hired servant and a sojourner, he shall be with you and shall serve you until the year of Jubilee. So someone who was a slave for whatever reason, then you shall not compel him to be a slave. He's gonna be as a hired servant basically and he'll serve you until the year of Jubilee, so meaning he would be let go after six years of service. Deuteronomy 15 says that on the, on the seventh year you shall not let him go empty-handed, you shall bless him as he goes, and so they were to remember that they were slaves in, in Egypt. So during the discussion, so some of those things I had mentioned and then some I had to actually research but I wanted to pass on to you, but during the discussion too, I was able to turn around the sort of the, not the argument, but the discussion, that there's a reason for everything in the Bible. There are, just like there's laws to protect the slave here, but there's also laws that actually protect the citizen, meaning there's incentive for the slave not to steal from you because then he's gonna become your servant. So there are amazing details in the word of God that there's a reason that it's in, in there you know, for us to learn. And God's word being so advanced and so amazing if you take the time to study it. And what I mentioned was Numbers, seven, uh, Numbers 19, sorry. It states that there's, if there's an open vessel in a tent where someone dies, then that open vessel is unclean. In fact, the people are unclean and the open vessel, if someone dies in the tent and there's a jar where there's not a covering on it, that vessel is unclean and anybody who happened to be in there at the time of death is unclean for seven days. That's an obscure verse, but it's amazing when you look, when you dig in just a little bit deeper. And it was 33, this was written, you know, 3,300 years ago, whenever it was when, when Numbers 19 would have been written by Moses. But the point is that they were using running water and the priests would have, have to wash and do that. But it wasn't until the mid-1800s 
when Louis Pasteur would identify this as an actual problem. So think about how advanced numbers, the Bible is, numbers way back when at the time of Moses telling us something like if a jar is open and someone dies, so much, you know, of course, the Lord knowing about microbiology and all these things, people had no idea back then. So think about how advanced that the Bible is, whereas Louis Pasteur finally identified it, and here's how he identified what the problem was. And these are things we take for granted, but at the time of Louis Pasteur, there were more women dying in hospitals and childbirth than with the midwives at home. So it was a mystery for the doctors and the surgeons and people trying to manage the ladies. Ladies would go to the hospital to have a baby. Many of them would die a lot more than the women at home. And so Louis Pasteur figured out, he, he watched the surgeons and the doctors, they would go from a birth and then they would go to the morgue and examine a body and be like, oh, why didn't, you know, why is this person dead? Then they would go back up to another birth and back and forth like that between like morgue, birth, you know, just this pattern like that where they were just transmitting the disease, just this horrible stuff that we just take for granted now, but at the time they didn't know. And so Louis Pasteur was like, look, you guys got to be washing your hands at the very least. You're spreading this stuff around. And it actually took one of the surgeons, one of the doctors getting a cut in his hand where then he got the disease that the women had been getting and he died. So they didn't want to listen to just a microbiologist. They were surgeons. And then it took one of their, their own dying and then they, they identified it. And what's his name? Joseph uh, Lister, I think, in England, about the same time as Louis Pasteur, also was identifying some of this as well. So, but that's so much later than the Bible. It's amazing. Even the Jews during the Black Death in Europe, even the Jews were blamed for causing the plague because they seemed to be doing pretty well with it because they washed. They had the, the ritual purification and the washing just using running water, and the people didn't know, and they actually accused the Jews of doing it and kicked them out of certain regions in Europe. So really amazing. So... It, that was just one other thing that I mentioned to him and, and um, well-received, and I hope to get back to him soon. So moving right along, verses 11 through 14, uh, we see the wicked generation, where the wicked generation has been around since starting with Cain, it would seem. And it seems that it will culminate with the highest numbers or percentage of, in human history of men and women that are just... The Bible is saying explicitly evil, so it's referring to a generation, referring to both the time period and the type of person. And you see it with characteristics like Nimrod, or I'm sorry, characters like Nimrod and Esau. It's interesting how the Bible refers to both of them as hunters, whereas you have people like Jacob and David who are referred to as shepherds. So you see a, a little glimpse of this evil generation. Uh, verses 15 and 16, the leech has two daughters, give and give. Uh, we see that right now in our own country where people are being paid not to work and, and um, a lot of people are very unhappy with the supply chain and everything else going on because of that. It's, it's really affecting everyone. But if you're paying people to not work, then that's what you get. And, and there's plenty of people that are willing to accept that. So the other things listed as never satisfied, the grave, the barren womb, the earth, and fire. Verse 17, the eye that mocks his father and scorns obedience to his mother, the ravens of the valley will pick it out and the young eagles will eat it. This is the theme going all the way back to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 28, 26 says, there's a curse. Your carcasses will be as food for all the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. All the way through Revelation where we see 
the birds of the air will feast on the carcasses of the end times arm, end time army. So it's a judgment uh, that we see all throughout the Bible. Verses 18 and 19 seems to be some Hebrew poetry, the three things and then the four, the eagle, serpent, ship, and the man with the woman. Um, those are some of those, your guess is as good as mine. They, they seem to be, you know, kind of just amazing things overall. Some of them pointing to things in creation. Uh, verse 20, the adulterous woman, we, she sounds a lot like the woman from Proverbs 9:17, the woman that says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten as secret is pleasant. That's a, that's a theme throughout Proverbs as well. And verses 21 through 23, they all seem to be bad here. First, the servant when he reigns. Proverbs 19.10 says, Luxury is not fitting for a fool, much less for a servant to rule over princes. And then second and third here are the fool when he is elevated, as well as an odious woman when she is elevated and has the dignity of a wife. In both cases, they abuse their positions. And then last is the maidservant who succeeds her mistress or the slave girl who supplants her mis mistress. And we see a little glimpse of this in Genesis 16 when Abraham and Hagar are together and then she conceived. And then when, when she saw that she'd conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. And you know the rest of the story with that. And then uh, back to nature here for the lessons to be learned from Verses 24 through 28, you see the ants, badgers, locusts, and the spider, all part of creation. And, and just the Lord gives them the ability to make and create and do what they're exactly what they were made to do. It's funny that humans don't do that. We just don't do what we're supposed to be doing all the time. But the rest of creation does that, and it's no problem for them. And last section here, verses 29 through 31, the lion, the greyhound, Greyhound and the goat, all these things are, are majestic. The goat is debatable. I'm not sure what kind of goat it's referring to, but the goats I've seen aren't, aren't majestic at all. They're, they like to eat your laundry and stuff like that, but uh, I guess some of the mountain goats probably are pretty majestic, but not a lot of the goats that we see around here. And verses 32 and 33, he finishes on the thought which he, that he started. It's foolish to exalt yourself or um, devise evil, because you can certainly expect strife to follow. So he ends where he began with a warning. And for our last note, we'll finish looking at creation as well. This is something that I read that the ancient Hebrews noticed about the original creation and the making of the tabernacle in, in Exodus. So hopefully you'll find this interesting. It's by, it's really just amazing, you know, it, it would almost look like a coincidence, but it's neat to see what the Lord, you know, what mankind can do when filled with the Holy Spirit and the people following God's design in building the tabernacle. So this, what this is, is the tabernacle represented the Lord's presence with the people, but the building of the tabernacle, it's interesting how it parallels creation. So on day one, you have the first day of creation, Psalm 104.2, it says, he who stretches out the heavens like a curtain. And then with the making of the tabernacle, it's Exodus 26, 7, and you shall make curtains of goat's hair for a tent over the tabernacle. So you see, you see kind of the stretching out of the heavens and the stretching out over the tabernacle, day one. Day two, second day of creation, let there be a firmament and let it divide between the waters and the waters. So with the tabernacle, Exodus 26, 3, and the veil shall divide for you between the holy and the holy of holies. So 
day two, you see kind of a, a division there, uh, both in creation and the tabernacle. Day three, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together. Exodus 30, 18, regarding the tabernacle. And you shall make a copper basin and the base thereof copper for washing. So you see the waters there in day three. Day four, let there be luminaries or lights in the heaven with the tabernacle, Exodus 25:20, 20, and you shall make a menorah of pure gold. So you have the lights, the stars, and then the, the menorah for the, ta- for the tabernacle. Day five, let the f- fowl fly above the earth, so the birds in the air, day five. With the tabernacle, Exodus 25:20, 20, the cherubim shall spread out their wings upward. So day six, man was created to tend the earth. With the tabernacle, Exodus 28, 1, bring near Aaron, your brother, to tend to the service of the sanctuary. So just like man was put in the garden to tend it, Aaron was brought into the, to serve in the sanctuary, in the tabernacle. Day seven, last one, is Genesis chapter two. And the heaven and the earth were completed, and God blessed and sanctified. With the tabernacle, Exodus 39 and Numbers chapter seven, thus was, all, was completed all the works of the tabernacle, and Moses blessed them and came, came to pass on that day. Moses completed the tabernacle and sanctified it. So you see the blessing, day seven there, where the Lord blesses the earth and everything is good and he sanctified it. Same thing with the tabernacle where it's eventually built. So interesting parallels there. And it, it made me really think, I, I just love this sort of thing, you know, kind of looking forward, the earthly things reflecting the eternal and ultimate glory that shall be revealed. Um, some of your minds might have gone to Hebrews. Mine did as soon as I read that, the parallels between the, par- the tabernacle and creation. But Paul, Paul or whoever wrote uh, Hebrews says it clearly here. Hebrews chapter 8, For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not, not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. So excitingly, what this suggests to me, it almost seems like a merging of the original creation with the redeemed creation, all kind of forming together the eternal creation, which is something always to look forward to. And... um, That's it. That's the message. So, gentlemen, we'll have men's prayer in about four or five minutes in the corner. With that, let's go before the Lord. Father, we thank you this evening, Lord. We thank you that your word is so rich, and it's true and trustworthy, Lord. And we do put our trust in you, and we know that we have an evidence-based faith, Lord. And uh, despite what the world may say, Lord, we know what we know and why we know it, Lord. You've given us plenty of evidence, and we thank you for it, and we pray that you would equip us further for reaching the lost, Lord, as so many people have not studied in detail, Lord. And, and Lord, we do want to contend for the faith, as Jude and many other authors of the Bible encourage us to do. So we thank you. We pray for your blessing on the evening, Lord, and just allow everyone to travel home safely, Lord. Bless and watch over them. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.